really having uh, the Titch and Joan and and the whole choir and their amazing team with us uh, for this whole week but um, the first time we met Titch and Joan was almost exactly a year ago and there was a reason because many of you know we have a daughter called Beth who had this idea a crazy idea of spending a gap year in Africa and for some reason, people had been suggesting that uh, she goes to a place called Live Village, which was set up by Titch and Joan. Now, as parents, we hadn't heard of Live Village or Titch and Joan. And uh, we wanted to know who these crazy people we were releasing our precious daughter to. So when we found out they were coming to the UK, we thought we would uh, uh, get to know them. Um, after five minutes of our time with them, as they told us their story um, of their own personal relationship with God and actually how the journey of Live Village developed, we realized that actually we could entrust our daughter to them. So they went and she went. Nine months later, she comes back with half of the village which has been a real privilege. But we just wanted you really to hear a part of the story and to go back to the beginning so we can actually hear their hearts. So we're going to go a bit Richard and Judy-ish. We're going to ask them a few questions. Okay, so uh, Titch is on the left and this is Joan. Uh, Titch, it's an unusual name. How did you come? Let's go back to the beginning. How did you acquire the name of Titch? Morning, everybody. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure for us to be with you this morning. Thank you for loving us and for just spoiling the children over the last couple of days. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, at a school in Johannesburg um, and was always really tiny, um, right up to about grade 10. And so when I, I played sport, I played a lot of sport and, and they started to know me as Titch. And that sort of just stuck from four or five year old and so it's just you, stayed on. So you say you played a lot of sport. Uh, to what level did you play sport? <laughs> yeah, sport was 
the God in our home, I think my dad had played first class rugby and, and we played from a young age and I, I was blessed with a little bit of talent and I, I, I played rugby for the Sharks. I see they won yesterday, but I see our, our Springbok side lost. But, but I played rugby for the Sharks and then a year later when I was 20, I played rugby, uh, cricket for Natal and then managed to play cricket for South Africa. I had a year here at Middlesex, which I dearly loved. And my little nephew's been playing for England over the last couple of years. He's been opening the batting in the 2020 and the one dayers. So we have a close link with, with England and we, we love it. Um, so that's how it all started. So the, your, your cricketing career was actually at the time when uh, apartheid was very strong and there was a lot of objections across the world that was taking place and a lot of sporting bans. And that was the time that uh, you were wicket-keeping is that right? You were yeah. Yeah, behind the stumps. And uh, so that was an incredible, volatile time, I imagine, in South Africa. Yeah, it was a difficult time. I think when we look back at the horrific legacy that the apartheid era left in our nation, it's, it smashed up the, the family unit as we put people of colour into homelands and created jobs in the cities. Um, and the fabric of society, I believe, the family unit with Jesus Christ in the centre is the the source of, or, or the strength of, of countries, and that was decimated. But for us as sportsmen, it was also a difficult time because we weren't allowed to play uh, or go on international tours, but we had a lot of what they called the rebel tours in that time, the guys that prepared to, to stand up for what we believe justice. We stood up for justice back home. We, we boycotted a game with South played North. We refused to play as the umpires stood on the field. Um, against apartheid. And then guys like Mike Gattin and Tony Gregg, uh, Mike Dennis, the Chapel brothers, they brought teams across right. to play test matches against South Africa during the apartheid era. So was it all plain sailing as a cricketer? I, I kind of had a bit of an insight into uh, some of your life by reading your outstanding biography, which is available in all good bookshops. Okay, out into the foyer right now. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your background and actually even how you came to faith and perhaps you can touch in on your first marriage and what happened there? And Yeah, I think, you know, fame and fortune, I think we all brought up in a first world, Western world culture. Fame and fortune is what we desire and desire for our children. And so I was chasing after fame and fortune. Uh, Sylvester Stallone once said, he said, fame and fortune was like a mirage in the desert. You strive all your life to get there. When you get there, there's nothing. And I was on this journey and I couldn't handle the little bit of fame and fortune that I, that I achieved. And, and I ended up in a home for alcoholics and drug addicts when I was 35 years of age. Addicted to gambling, had enormous gambling debts. Uh, my wife and children decided that they couldn't last, carry on any longer. We'd be married for 12 years. And so they left. But it was at that time before I went into the home for alcoholics and drug addicts, um, Peter Pollock, some of the older folk may remember Peter, he was a famous cricketer back home, played for South Africa, and his son Sean, captain South Africa. And I went to see him, and he had one look at me after listening to my story, <laughs> and he said, Titch, your life's in a real mess. He said, there's only one answer, and his name is Jesus Christ. And that night I cried my eyes out, gave my life to Jesus, and then went to this home for alcoholics and drug addicts. Now, Joan, you don't feature in that part of Titch's life, but um, I know that you have um, a background. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your story, really, and your past background. I'm very pleased I wasn't the first wife. 
I got titch when he was a lot better cleaned up. <laughs> um, yeah, I also came from a, a family background of where God didn't feature. And in 1981, um, my little niece, when she was three years old, my sister's child, was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And my sister um, came home one day and she said that she was born again. And we thought the Moonies had got hold of her. <laughs> um, but we said if it helps her, then that's great. And then she started talking about divine healing. And we said, oh, no, our alarm bells went off. And she said, oh, no, that doesn't happen. Um, the child is going to die. They couldn't operate. Uh, to cut a long story short, she was miraculously healed. And she's 38 today and works with us. Um, so that's... Uh, that caused our whole family to kind of literally stop in our tracks. And one by one, um, the family members started to come to Jesus. And I was one of the last because I was quite enjoying uh, the, the wild life. I was married to a professional golfer. We had two children. And life was pretty good. We traveled a lot and partied a lot. And, um, but eventually I got there and gave my life to Jesus. And I thought, well, that's my ticket to heaven. So... You know, I can carry on. And little things started to happen. You know, I started to feel uneasy when I had too many drinks. I started to feel um, uh, uneasy when I blasphemed. And slowly I realized my life was changing. And then in um, 1990, um, my husband went fishing one afternoon and didn't come back. And uh, for five days we searched for him. It was like time and, and, and everything just stopped, our lives stopped. And we finally found the three young teenage boys who'd um, killed him for his car. Um, and I just said to God, my, my kids were teenagers at that stage, I said, I'm out of here, I don't want to be here, it's too tough. As soon as my kids don't need me anymore, take me home. And I made a deal with God. And... Um, my kids are now 39 and 43, and they still need me. So that, that didn't work. <laughs> Guys, you're your parents, you'll know exactly what I mean. And, um, yeah, so um, then Titch was helping me with my insurances. And you know what they say, beware the insurance salesman. <laughs> well, I didn't. <laughs> and he was also quite cute in those days. Oh. He still is. I was going to say, you're, st you're still very cute, Titch, honest. A real afterthought. <laughs> and within a year, we were married. In fact, when we, he took me for tea the one day and said that God said he must look after me and my children. And I said, you're mad. I said, I've made a deal with God. He's taking me home. As soon as my kids are grown up, don't want to love anymore. That's too painful. You're mad, but, but he, you know, he, had, he was very persuasive. <laughs> and, and I guess there's been quite a journey since then. I mean, just tell us a little bit about, I don't know whether Titch wants to say this, about how, how you came about building a village. And the timing in that, yeah. I, it, it was an amazing journey. Um, God revealed himself to, to us in amazing ways, two amazing ways, because I continued to drink a hundred times more after I came out of the home for alcoholics and drug addicts. And then one day I cried out to him and said, surely this can't be your plan for my life. I can't stop drinking. 
So I need you to take the taste of alcohol away. And he set me free. That was 26 years ago, this September. I've never desired another drop of alcohol. And then a friend of mine got miraculously healed. He's in a coma and, and, and uh, they said he would never survive and he would end up a vegetable, but God healed him. And in those ways, God revealed himself that I knew that this father that I'd come to know is as real as you are sitting there to me. He, I just love him. I, I think where there's much forgiveness, there's, there's, there's much love. And I love him with every ounce of my being. And so Joni and I started on this journey and, and God restored our life. I paid back the gambling debts and... And then one day I cried out to God on a, a trip back from a mission trip uh, in a car on my, on my own and I prayed in tongues for two hours and then I, I said to God, surely, surely there's more to life than this. And uh, he then started to download this vision. He said, build a village for the children uh, that they would come to know me as their father. Create jobs for rural communities in our country. They're 51% of people between the ages of 18 and 35 are out of, out of jobs. But I'm saying create jobs for rural communities that they can sustain their families and the government will come and see why it works and we can point them to the cross. And so it was a crazy vision because we'd never been into the communities given the poorer thought in our lives and now God gives us this vision. And I was too embarrassed to tell anybody but I came home and I shared it with Joni and I drew this picture, it was so clear. And then... I thought he'd lost his mind. <laughs> we were doing life with our te four teenage children, uh, lots of bills to pay, and he comes home from this mission trip and says we must build a, a, a village. And, and um, we, we'd never given the poor a thought or the orphans a thought. And, um, and we thought it was immediate, so, so we, we tried to get land and that didn't work. And, and then you know how th things happen, it just goes into the back burner. It was always there, but we didn't really give it much thought. And then 2001, um, the kids had all left home, and, and we turned our house into a guest house. And there were two ladies working with us, and they came from this, this township, this community called Amawati. And it was only 20 minutes' drive away from our home. We'd never been into an African community before, because apartheid had separated everything. Um, and we weren't allowed into their communities as much as they weren't allowed into ours. And they kept telling me about these starving kids. And I thought, maybe I can do something, you know, something, just something just started to niggle within me. What, can, what have I got in my hands? And I think that's so important. So often we think, we, we, what can we do? The, 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 the problem is too huge. What difference will, can I make? And all I could think of was peanut butter sandwiches. I mean, for goodness sakes, kids are allergic to peanut, to nuts, and here I'm thinking peanut butter sandwiches. So I started feeding 20 kids under a tree, went into the township, and again, it's like when you go, um, that's when you start to see, and it's in the going. I always talk about us Christians as being ships in the harbor. And it's safe. The harbor's like the church, and it's a safe place, and it's predictable, and you're tied to the world. And the world system in, in, infests you, and, um, and it's okay. But God is saying, untie yourself from the world and the world system and come out into the ocean. And the ocean is rough, and it's, un, uh, you know, it's, it's 
unpredictable, but God can move the rudder when you're going. And it's in the going that I, I soon realized that 30 kids under the tree with once a week peanut butter sandwiches is not going to cut it, you know. So we started to feed, and the kids just increased in numbers, and we, we started to feed, um, you know, three times a week and then five times a week, and then we started a preschool, a, a nursery school, and then we, got, we could see kids should be in school, and we, so we got 600 kids into, back into school. We started... You know, it just, and it's in the going that it, as you walk, as you walk with Jesus, he highlights things. So although I didn't have a vision beyond once a week peanut butter sandwiches, he was able to use me as I went and, and sort of open my eyes to what could be. It's amazing. Teach, perhaps you could then pick up the story because to go from one day to three days to five days to be feeding into... <laughs> 600 children back into school, did you just say? It's like a, how, how did that then develop the journey into the village? Yeah. Can I, sorry, can I tell a quick story about when Titch came for the first time? Okay. He, thought it, he thought he'd better come and check what his wife's doing. So he came one very hot, dusty The women are always day. the ones to blame. They always start things. <laughs> and he, he arrived in his insurance salesman suit and he picked up a couple of kids and they got snot all over his suit and, and he looked at me and he said, oh, this is not for me. He says, I'll make the money and you feed the kids. So is that what happened? Yeah, it, it was, it was. And then a couple of weeks later, we met Mike Palavachi right in the middle of the community. Uh, that's another long story, but, but God broke our hearts for the things. We saw a young girl who that try to rape in a, in a shabin, which is illegal tavern. And uh, I walked in to see what was happening and I started to speak to the men there, drunk, drunk, 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning. And some started to listen and some started to get angrier and angrier. And I felt God say that they're as vulnerable to the gospel as they are to the things of the world, but nobody's offering them the gospel. And he said, I must go in and share it. And that's how I started going into with Joni. And then in 2007, we, we had a crusade, an amazing 28 nights, every single night for five, 28 days, and we shared the gospel. Thousands came to know Jesus. And it was at that that I, I read a book called Passing the Baton, and I felt God say it's time to pass the business to our younger son and join Joan full-time, which I did. And then a year later, I'm not sure if it happens to you guys, but I felt God say, clear your desk and spend time with me, which I ignored. I thought, what more do you want from me, Lord? I'm now in the, in the community and I'm doing what you want me to do. And then in the gym one day, he said to me, do you love me enough to stop? And I said, stop what? He said, stop everything. Now, at this stage, we were feeding 2,500 children every day. We had 600 of the back-to-school program. And I must say, our back-to-school program, these are the things that encourage you. We've had our first child graduate from that back-to-school program. We started to look after her from a five-year-old. And she's just qualified as a journalist. She's wrote 34 subjects over three years and got 24 distinctions. So we're really excited about those things. And so um, he said, will we stop? And then Joni and I had a, a bit of a, she said it was from the devil. It wasn't from God. We can't stop. We were employing these people, feeding those children. But it was special. We went away. We always go away when we have these sort of issues with the Bible. And for six weeks, we prayed. And on the 9th of January, 2009, as I started to pray, God said, the time for the village is now. 
that village that we had given 12 years previously had given us the vision. But in those 12 years, three things happened. I think the vision became clearer. More importantly, he had to deal with us. He took us into the community where he broke us down. Those communities are tough places to work. We had death threats. We were threatened by everybody and counselors. But he broke us down and molded us into somebody I believe that he could use to build a village. And thirdly, God started to walk, work in the background. And there was a change of government from the IFP to the ANC. And an amazing man who's coming on Tuesday to speak at the banquet we have in South Africa house with the children. He, he backed us. And um, we started to, to look for land. Um, and then we, we found a piece of land after six months. So just break in you say you found a piece of land just six months. I, I, from what I understand, you were at a, at a youth event called Soul Survivor that you were on the stage with, you mentioned Mike Pilavacci, and he asked you the question, when are you going to be breaking the ground? When are you going to be laying the first stone? You say? I don't know why I said it, but I just felt in my heart, I started my spirit that we would lay the first brick before the end of the year. So it was August. So we haven't bought the land yet, and we come off the stage, and Joan reprimands me. She said, how can you say that? We haven't bought the land. But we had gotten an SMS from this guy that was helping us. He said, I really believe we have this piece of land for you. So we were so excited. We raced back to South Africa, and, and as we put our foot on this land, we'd been looking for six months. Um, we both looked at each other. We said, this is the land. And so we, we bought the land. And it was a broken down old chicken farm. We now have 450 acres. Um, but the chicken farm, and we laid, we started to clean up these broken chicken uh, houses. And we started to build the church. So that, by that December, we had started to build the church on the village. So it was Amazing. special. Yeah. So. No, I was just looking at you, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> We could carry on to say, well, how, I mean, it must cost a lot of money to, to build. And, um, I mean, how did you raise this money? Just tell us in a, a nutshell how this happened, if you can. Well, I think the important thing was that we had created a little bit of wealth, so we bought the farm. I felt, God, you need to put your money where your mouth is. But I felt God say, we needed to buy the farm. And then, so we had this broken down chicken farm, and we had no money. So I said, Lord, but now what happens? So... I'd sold all my life. I found a thousand people, a hundred people to give me a thousand in each a month, which gave me an income of a hundred thousand. So I could do the applications, town planning and environmental applications. And then he, I felt him say, bring business and government together. So we had a, a, a gala banquet at the, at the our international convention center. We invited 4,000 people uh, and we brought business and government together. And we shared the vision and we started to raise the money. And as we started to build the first eight houses, I said to our premier, who had come to the banquet, and said to him, Doc, I need some money from you. He said, Titch, I can't give you money, but the ministers in government have budgets, and if they believe what you're doing is a solution to the problems we face, they, they can give you some money. So he opened the door for me to go to cabinet. And so I went to the cabinet, a really tough 60-year-old white man going to tell our new black government how to look after their children. And I shared the vision. And the Minister of Health said this. He stood up. He said, ladies and gentlemen, I've just got back from Rwanda. He said, I saw with my own eyes babies feeding off the breasts of dead mothers. He said, we're fast going down that road in this country. We don't know something about it. Bear in mind, I told government I don't want any money from them. 
if they want to have a say in the running of the village, because the Bible doesn't mention government have to look after the children. The Bible is categoric that you and I as the church need to look after the children. So he went on to say that what he's seen, what we've seen and heard in cabinet this morning, how can we as the government stand in the way of God's vision for the children of this nation? He said, I support this 100%. And the following week, I got a memo from cabinet to say all 13 government departments supported live, and they gave me eight million pounds. And I realized that God owns all things. He is all things. And if we will continue to do what he's called us to do, he continues to remind Joni and I every day. He says, don't limit me. If you want to do your plans, you must pay for them. If you want to do my plans, I will pay for them. So now at 65 years of age, we've realized that his plans are better than our plans. And he's got more money than we've got. So best we continue to do his plans. And I promise you, I, if, if, if the church would hear the heartbeat of the Father, we can look after every single orphan and vulnerable children in our nation. We've got 5 million, 12,000 have been orphaned every month. And I know that his plan is the local church. And he says, if, if he doesn't say, but if every single church, if this church adopted one child, not family, if this church, King's Church, adopted one child, and every church around the world adopted a child, there wouldn't be an orphan or vulnerable child in the world. God is crying out to hear his heartbeat for the lost, and very especially for his orphan children. We would love... We would love to talk for hours. We have had the privilege of being able to speak with you for hours on and off this week and I would love actually even to touch if we had the time but we haven't, about even like the second half of life there's a number of people who are asking the same question about the second half of life and you've just said they're at the age of 65 and, and uh, you know God has got a, got a hold of you, you're passionate about serving his purposes and his plans and we can see that, we can see a number of times that we've met you and the, the emotion of the passion that you have just for fulfilling what God has called you to. Five million vulnerable children in South Africa, 12,000 a month being added to the at-risk register. One village isn't going to be the answer. Multiple villages. And the idea of just the, the, how you go forward from here, please, we'd love to spend time on that. But just only have one more question. You have now spent a little bit of time with us as a church community. What would be your prayer for this church? Now, we didn't warn you about that, so you'd be better in the 11 o'clock, but <laughs> how you spent time, what, what can we be doing? What, what would be your prayer for us as a church community? I think my prayer is that you step out the boat <laughs> more. I think you're doing a lot of amazing stuff from what we've seen. I think you've got planned so much. I love that it takes a church to raise a child um, and that whole thing around it. And I think you are stepping out the boat and moving out the walls. Tit will probably tell you to break down the walls <laughs> that you've just built. Um, but that's, that for me is, is in, within your church and within every church, there's every skill and, and, and every talent that you could possibly need to look after every vulnerable child out there. 
and, um, and, and every vulnerable family. So that would be, that would be my heart, my prayer for you. Um, Graham, I think, I think from my side, and, and I, I want to challenge you as the leaders, I believe that only God has the plan. And God has a plan for this church. And just listening to the leadership and staying with Andy and Lyndon and, and listening to you guys, I think you've set the structure and the foundations to launch into something that God is calling you to do. And I want to encourage the leaders because I, I've listened to some of the vision, but that vision will become clearer and clearer. And I just want to encourage you that not to limit God going forward and that what you've done with this wall is as you paid off this mortgage has been an amazing blessing. I've read that story. Um, God is going to use this church in an amazing way if you would just buy into the vision of the leaders and trust God that nothing, he, we can do nothing, but there's nothing that he cannot do. And so we want to stand alongside you guys in prayer and hopefully in other ways, as we said, we, we would like to sponsor one of those families that you're looking for sponsors so Liv would like to sponsor that because we believe we need to sow seed into the kingdom so we, would, we look forward to that and um, just as we end I just want to put your minds at rest because the children come back and they sing some amazing celebratory songs and I saw you when they were trying to teach you to dance I was, I was in Uganda with a friend of mine who's got a church of 20,000 and 2,000 see the auditorium, they come in in five different sessions, so they, 2,000 come in, the others don't go home, they close the doors and they wait for the next meeting, next meeting, and next meeting. And I was sitting with Gary like I'm sitting with you in the front, and we looked back and we just saw these people worshipping and dancing like only the African people can do. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Titch, don't worry, the white man wasn't made to dance. <laughs> We, we have so absolutely benefited from spending our time as leaders. We've just, we've just grown in faith, lifted our head up, what is God saying, what is God calling us to. I would love us to bless them. I'm going to ask the, the welcome host team now. We're going to be passing around some, uh, some buckets. What we'd love to do, anything that goes into the bucket today, preferably finances, we just want to bless and give to Live Village. I know we're doing the Nuts Challenge thing next week as well. Now, some of you may not have geared up for that, and many of you I know are giving into local church by standing orders and things like along those sort of lines. So you might not be geared up. There's the number of these envelopes that says, you know, honor God, bless the community, resource the church. Okay, we want to bless the community. And we want to resource these guys. So if you've got credit cards or debit cards, you can fill those in. If you're uncomfortable about filling your details in here, because leave one of the boxes blank and I will fill it in for you if you want. I, I, I don't mind the amount of money. If you feel uncomfortable about that, you can go into the bookshop resource and just use your card and you can donate that way as well. You can put on here pledges and IOUs. If you just want to give into this project, because it is massive. And it is making a massive difference. So why don't we just pass the, the offerings around. Some of you might just need a bit of time to think about it. That is fine. You don't have to rush away for hours. You can be thinking about it for the next few hours. But I love these buckets. Just go around. Let's put a little bit of music on. Let's thank uh, Joan and Titch right now for being with us. <laughs>